You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for the Washington Post. A government shutdown was averted. Omicron is advancing while Build Back Better is creeping along. So here to make sense of it all, Dan Baltz, chief correspondent for the Washington Post. Dan, welcome back to First Look. Thank you, Jonathan. Good morning. So government shutdown averted and the Republican pushed amendment uh, against vaccine mandates that threatened to upend everything failed. What happened? Well, you know, it's government shutdown averted again. Um, we, we continue to go through this, you know, this dance, frankly, um, and Congress finds a way ultimately to get past the deadline, but not without considerable drama. And in this case, it was the Republicans who were threatening to, to uh, put the government into shutdown uh, as a way to block the mask and vaccine mandates that the president is pushing on major corporations. Um, you know, there's an inevitability about these things, Jonathan. I think in the end, neither party, obviously, certainly the party that's in the majority, but even the Republicans, don't want to be responsible for a government shutdown, and yet uh, they they are willing to take it to the very brink uh, and then back off. And I think that's again what we saw yesterday. There was a vote on the amendment; it failed. Um, there will be a vote on a resolution next week, apparently, that would uh, state the Republicans' opposition to the vaccine requirement and mandate. Um, so it's you know it's it's a lot of theater that nonetheless you know create some drama, in the end, we get to where I think everybody assumed we would get to, which is no government shutdown. Dan, you used the word that I literally I wrote down 30 seconds before you said it, theater. And I wrote down theater because one of the nuggets in the stories about all this, now this amendment thing was the Republicans said, we only just want a simple majority, 50, 50 votes. But when you look at the tally, it was 48 Republicans voted for it. Two Republicans didn't vote. And from what I heard uh, um, this morning being reported, the two Republicans weren't even in the chamber. So was this a foregone conclusion before the vote even happened that this was going to fail? It may well have been. I mean, it may well have been that this was choreographed uh, to fail, but to take it again to the brink. And I, I mm -hmm. you know, Jonathan, we've, we've gone through this now a couple of times this fall over the government shutdown. We've been through one episode with the debt ceiling, and we will have to go through another one in a couple of weeks because there's another deadline on the debt ceiling in mid-December. Um, and one of the things that I was reminded of as I was watching this play out and thinking about it again this morning is that um, Congress, Congress is kind of caught in a loop in which it is doing the same thing over and over for no particular good reason. Um, <laughs> keeping the government open seems to be, ought to be a no-brainer, and raising the debt ceiling ought to be a no-brainer. It's happened every time. We've never not raised the debt ceiling. So these are, these are ultimately meaningless exercises that nonetheless consume real time and take attention away from the issues that I think most Americans wish that the Congress were dealing with. And you know, um, as one, um Senate source told me recently as sort of a reminder, all these continuing resolutions that keep the budget in place, 
That's the Donald Trump budget. President Biden still doesn't have a, a budget that reflects his priorities. But let's move, turn our attention to the COVID pandemic and, and the emergence of Omicron in the United States. Yesterday, President Biden urged Americans not to panic. And he said, we, we are better positioned to fight COVID than we were a year ago. Do you think the American people agree with that assessment? That's a really good question. I, I think that, you know, we probably are better equipped to deal with this. We, you know, a, a year ago, we didn't have vaccines available. Um, a year ago, we weren't in the position in which we had some therapeutics online that were soon to be available. Um, so in, in many ways, we know a lot more about how to fight the disease. <clears throat> We've learned that we can keep schools open, uh, that some businesses can have people come back into the offices. So in many ways, we've learned a lot that puts us in a better position to deal with this. Nonetheless, I think that the, the reemergence of yet another another variant causes a lot, considerable amount of anxiety with people. Um, and the, just the daily decisions that people have to make about their own risk tolerance um, causes frustration and anxiety. So um, the government is in a better position to fight it, but I'm not sure that Americans feel that um, they are in a better position to figure out how to weather it. And so the likelihood of the shutdowns, the widespread shutdowns that we saw at the beginning of this pandemic, the likelihood of that is, would you say, next to nil? Yes, pretty much next to nil, unless there's some dramatic element of the uh, Omicron variant that we don't know yet. And, and I think the scientists have been pretty clear that there is still a lot more that we need to learn about this, that, <clears throat> that this is still relatively new and there's not enough evidence available yet to be able to draw certain conclusions, certainly about um, whether the current vaccines will continue to provide immunity. Um, there's some evidence that's come out over the last day or so that this variant has an ability to reinfect people who have been infected in the past. Uh, that, would, that should be worrisome for people who are not vaccinated. What it means for people who are vaccinated, we don't know yet. But um, absent something really, really dramatic, I think that the president is, is correct in the fact that we're not going to shut down the economy and shut down you know, schools again in the way that we had to do in 2020 when we were much, much less prepared. Mm -hmm. um, in, in the four minutes that we have left, let's talk about Build Back Better. Um, what's going on with negotiations uh, in the Senate? Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer keep saying you know, this is going to get passed by, by the end of the year or before the end of the year. But how likely is that when you have CNN reporting yesterday that Senator Kirsten Sinema, quote, won't commit to voting for it? And then, you know, mansion's gone mansion. So <laughs> where are things with Bill Back to the Senate? Jonathan, if we could get in the heads of, of uh, particularly Senator Manchin, we might really be able to know whether this is going to get passed by December 31st or not. I mean, certainly uh, I, certainly at this point, one would say it's touch and go as to whether it will get done by the end of the year. Um, and the negotiations are obviously torturous. I mean, they as they have continued to be. Um, what it is at this point exactly that will hold it up is not entirely clear to, to most people. Um, and the conversations will continue to go on and the pressure will be applied to Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema, um, but they do have the ability to hold out. 
And we know that there are aspects of what passed the House that, that Senator Manchin is not happy with, uh, doesn't think should be in there. And he's also made clear that he just doesn't think there is that sense of urgency that this needs to get done by the end of the year. He's made clear that he thinks that we ought to get a better sense of, of uh, the impact of what has already been passed, um, particularly the inflationary impact, before, before Congress moves ahead on another you know, roughly $2 trillion in spending. So I think that's that's where we are. We're, you know, as you suggest, we're we're in this continuing stage of incrementalism, uh, both in terms of the negotiations and in the question of exactly whether they will hit that December 31st deadline or whether it will spill over a little bit. Uh, again, I think that people uh, assume that that in the end, Congress will pass this this bill, this Build Back Better bill. Um, but as to the timing, we're going to probably be back in a few weeks asking the same question we're asking this morning. But I mean, Dan, come on, the sense of urgency that that um, Senator Manchin doesn't seem to have doesn't match the sense of urgency within the Democratic Party writ, writ large, because you've been around Washington a long time and reporting on Washington a long time. Folks are trying to get this done before the end of the year, because you know and I know once the calendar clicks to 2022, given that a midterm election is coming, nothing is going to happen. So it, does that explain why, why Senator Schumer is like, yep, we're going to get this done by the end of the year? Oh, I think that's absolutely right. I think that, you know, the, any day you get into 2022, <clears throat> the farther you get into it, the more difficult it becomes. On the other hand, um, part of the reason that we uh, say things like that is that we know that cooperation between Republicans and Democrats you know, will will not exist in 2022. We can't really yep. say it exists right now. Um, so in some ways, the dynamic early in 2022 within the Senate is not going to be particularly different than it is now, other than that there are going to be Democrats who are even more nervous and, and worried than they are today, because the longer this drags on, um, the, you know, the, the more it becomes problematic about uh, for the Democrats as they look to 2022 mm -hmm. and the enthusiasm of their base and the questions about what kind of turnout they're going to be able to have in those key races. Dan, Democrats are always nervous, no matter <laughs> when, no matter what time of year or part of the, the year it is. Washington Post chief correspondent Dan Baltz, as always, thank you very much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. But, thanks, Jonathan. You too. We're going to keep the conversation going with our opinions roundtable in just a minute. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post deputy editorial page editor Ruth Marcus and Washington Post columnist George Will. Ruth and George, welcome back to First Look. Morning, Jonathan. So, Ruth, I'm going to start with you because of the other big, big news this week centered on the Supreme Court and the arguments in that Mississippi uh, abortion case. Um, the, this Mississippi law um, would ban most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. The justices' questions left many worried that the high court could overturn the constitutional right to an abortion. Is Roe v. Wade truly in danger of being overturned, given the arguments you heard this week? Uh, short answer, yes, it is. And I'm honestly surprised to be saying this. I thought it was one of the most revealing and, for me, chilling arguments that I've heard at the court. And this is where I think I need to give the kind of prospectus warning. Um, you can't 
reliably judge what's going to happen based on oral argument. But mm -hmm. there were tea leaves and there were tea leaves that basically suggested this. The chief justice seems to be for the moment all alone in the notion that somehow the court could say, OK, uh, cutting off the ability to have abortion after 15 weeks is the new line. It's the 15 weeks is the new viability. And if states want to prohibit abortion after that, that's fine. But we don't have to decide where this goes from there. The other justices um, in varying degrees seem more willing to simply say Roe and Casey, the 1992 case that reaffirmed it, were wrongly decided and to take the plunge. I don't think that's certain, but I think it's more, I think today that it's more likely than I did a few days ago before this argument. You know, George, I would love your view on, on, on the arguments as well, but I'm also wondering, you know, the political implications if the, if the high court does indeed overturn, overturn Roe v. Wade. I agree with Ruth that the arguments were an intimation of, of overturning Roe v. Wade. Uh, you have to ask yourself, why did the court take this case in the first place? The court turns down almost all the cases that are offered for it to take. And the answer has to be it, it four at least of the justices like the idea that Mississippi flagrantly passed a law that violates their Roe v. Wade and, um, and Casey precedents of 73 and 92. Uh, if it's overturned as to the political ramifications, the first result will be hysteria because hysteria is the default position of American discourse these days. Second, it will dawn on a number of people that this does not ban abortion. It simply restores it as a subject for state regulation under the state's police powers. Third, there will be panic ensuing among about 8,000 state legislators in the country who then will have to decide what regulatory regime that they're going to have. And fourth, the American people will, will wake up to the fact that uh, we have had the most permissive, I'd say the most radical abortion law uh, in, in the Western world and much more permissive and radical than say in, in our, what we'd call our peer democracies in Western Europe. So it'll be an education and learning experience. I'm not sure, given the ambivalence of Americans on the subject of abortion, given the fact that most uh, Americans think that although the trimester analysis is now dated and out of date, uh, I, I, given that most Americans think second and third trimester abortion should be banned anyway, that's the mainstream position. I, I'm not sure there'll be a, 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 a political seismic event. Ruth, is that, I was struck by the word that George just used, the ambivalence of the American public when it comes to abortion. Is that, I would love your response to, a George, to George's um, analysis. Well, um, multiple responses. Um, first of all, I'm not sure I entirely agree with George's statement about the state of U.S. abortion laws and um, the permissiveness of them versus others. But but leaving that aside, he is absolutely correct that uh, the day after the decision, if it comes and if it comes out the way I fear, um, abortion will not be banned, but it will be banned 
in numerous states. That means that numerous states will not have abortion laws that are as allowable and permissive as France or England. In many places, you will not be able to obtain an abortion in your state if you are a woman. You won't be able to get it at six weeks or you won't be able to get it at all. And that will be the law of the land. I have a hard time seeing, I just have to get this uh, off my chest here, um, how the same party that is arguing about the horror of forcing people to have vaccines thinks that it's a good use of the state's police power to tell individuals how they should decide for themselves whether or not they believe that abortion is the taking of a human life and what they believe should be done with their own bodies. Um, but leaving that aside, yes, people of means, people like myself um, and my daughters would be able, if we lived in a state that prohibits abortion, to go elsewhere to obtain it. Um, but poor women, women of color, will find themselves in the bind that women in Texas find themselves in now. I, I do not think that's a good place. One quick sentence on the political implications. I think certainly for 2022, the Democrats are probably in such a hole that it is unlikely that the kind of weird, um, terrible silver lining of overturning Roe would be ginning up people enough to the barricades um, to help avert a, a loss of the House or mm -hmm. a loss of the Senate. Um, and I think uh, down the road, abortion will continue to be the, for, because people are so divided about it, the same kind of political issue that it has been for the last 50 years. Ruth, let me stick with you because re you, uh, recently you wrote that the high court now has a six justice majority that is, quote, emboldened, not hesitant. What, what are the other cases coming down the line where the conservative majority may prevail? Um, keep an eye on guns. There's a gun case that was also argued last month where we're going to see a expansion of the individual um, right to bear arms that the court decreed in 2008 and a constriction of the ability of states to um, restrict who can um, carry guns outside the home. And um, so that's one thing. The other thing that is coming down the pike to the Supreme Court quite soon has to do with affirmative action and the continuing permissibility of affirmative action in higher education. This is one where I think all six conservative justices are ready to say enough is enough. Let's stop um, racial preferences or including race as a diversity as a factor in college admissions. And finally, further um, lowering or basically de demolishing the wall of separation between church and state. There's an important case from Maine that's being argued next week. Um, George, you recently wrote in a column that Democrat, and this is, we're switching to build back better. And you wrote in a, uh, a column recently that Democrats needed to, quote, temper their enthusiasm about their many expensive enthusiasms. What's wrong with investing in America's future, George? What's wrong with investing in America's future is that people like you won't use the term spend. You decided that that's toxic. So we're going to say investment is, is now a synonym. The question is, we can't afford it. That is, we don't have the money. We're going to borrow it from uh, and, and add up the debt. This is a modern way of government. We now, we used to borrow, Jonathan, for the future. We built bridges and roads and fought wars for the future. Now we're borrowing from the future to finance our own consumption of government goods and services. And that is, a, to say no more, of dubious morality. But beyond that, 
Build Back Better would have passed uh, by now, but for the inflation numbers that have come down. Most Americans don't haven't read Milton Friedman on monetary theory, but most Americans, I think, sort of feel that in their bones that he was right when he said that inflation always and everywhere is a monetary phenomenon, that when you flood a recovering economy with stimulus uh, in, measured in tranches of trillions of dollars, you're going to get uh, inflation. And nothing radicalizes a middle-class nation faster and more reliably than the currency beginning to lose its role as a, as a, as a store of value. So I, again, when the, the inflation number came out, uh, the highest in 31 years, Build Back Better was in deep trouble and will remain there. I, I'm, particularly because the fuzzy math, as we used to say during the Bush administration, second Bush administration, the, the curious fudging of the cooking of the books on the part of uh, the, the Democrats to keep the true cost of this uh, below $2 trillion, which some of us think is a big number. Um, uh, all of this is, is making the path to enactment bumpier. Seems like cooking the books is a bipartisan effort that is has been generational on the I Hill. I agree, but when you when you do it with surging inflation, and when you do it, uh, I'll give you a number. We're talking big numbers. I'll give you a smaller number, eighteen. That's at last count, and I may be behind in this. That's the number of Democrats retiring from the House. There are no doubt different reasons for this with the with the eighteen. But certainly this is a sign that these professional politicians have looked at the future and said, this does not look like a good year in 2022. And, and this also feeds into the reluctance to throw several more trillions at the wall. Uh, Ruth, many Democrats feel that um, the spending bills, like the infrastructure package, like Build Back Better, are popular with the voters. If they're right, why is it so hard for them to turn those bills into law? Uh, Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema. I think those are two uh, immediate answers. I, I want to talk about inflation for a second because mm -hmm. I completely agree with George that inflation is a concern. Uh, he has Milton Friedman. I'm going to uh, dust off Larry Summers, who has appropriately warned about inflation in the past, but has argued, I think, quite persuasively that although um, the co politicians concerned about inflation are getting jitters over Build Back Better, in fact, Summers just believes that the Build Back Better spending, and yes, it is spending, um, so are tax cuts, by the way, but Summers has argued that the Build Back Better spending is actually not going to be inflationary, that it's going to help the economy by um, carving out space to build jobs that is uh, going to be spread out over a number of years. So we should worry about inflation. We shouldn't worry about it and build back better. But honestly, we should worry about the fate of build back better because it's not looking so good to me. Let's uh, switch gears to uh, Congresswoman um, Lauren Boebert, George House Minority Leader, <clears throat> excuse me, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy reportedly is trying to quietly extinguish various internal fires related to uh, Congressman Boebert and her Islamophobic comments about Congresswoman Omar. My question is, why isn't he publicly 
holding her accountable? I, I, I'm not uh, uh, familiar with the labyrinthine nature of Mr. McCarthy's mind. Uh, this does seem to me to be clear. The best construction I could put on this is that he understands that she is a provocateur, and the way to punish her, a sufficient and maximum punishment, is to not be provoked. Ignore her. She's trying to draw attention. She's taken to particular extreme, the performative nature of Congress these days. People come to Washington not to legislate, but to strike poses and get on television and all the rest. She's rather good at that. I mean, we're talking about her right now. Uh, just ignore her. She hurts people's feelings. A, people's feelings aren't that important. Uh, second, uh, she didn't really hurt their feelings because they they know she doesn't she's a, a silly and a marginal uh, creature uh comedy in a legislature would be nice to have but you get 435 people a few of them are going to be stark raving mad and she's one of them ignore her <laughs> okay I, I hear what you're saying george um but she's not just as you say hurting people's feelings congresswoman omar uh, at a press conference, played one of the threatening messages she, she has received since that video of Congresswoman Boebert um, uh, hit the airwaves. Ruth, um, we love your view on this, and, with, and, and also your view on you know, Speaker Pelosi and her team discussing whether to bring up a House resolution uh, condemning Islamophobia as an indirect reprimand of Congresswoman Boebert. Um, this would also be a means of keeping pressure on Minority Leader McCarthy to respond publicly. But is it a good move on his part to do what George is saying, and that is to ignore her? She's not going to go away. Uh, George and I are, are, are both parents of, of now grown children, and we did learn as parents that sometimes you need to ignore the tantrum and let the toddler cry it out. But sometimes you need to uh, draw a line and send a signal about what behavior is acceptable and what behavior is not acceptable. And I think um, whatever the labyrinthine mind, um, great phrase, George, of Kevin McCarthy is, um, it ought to be able to get to the capacity to say this is wrong. And it's not just um, that that is the obvious thing to say, it's that as you pointed out, Jonathan, this is the necessary thing to say. It's not a question of whether um, individual members' uh, feelings are heard. It's the tone that sitting members of the United States House of Representatives set in the comments that they make and what their colleagues uh, say um, expressly or tacitly is or is not acceptable behavior. Lines need to be drawn, and uh, this is what this is a moment for speaking out and saying this is unacceptable. For the Republicans to be able to say what should, shouldn't be that hard to say is, this is not who we are. She does not speak for us. What she said is wrong. Right. And you know what? I, I, I've lost track of time and we are out of time. But I, I echo what you say, Ruth. The other thing is, if Kevin McCarthy thinks that by ignoring them now, he'll be able to control them if indeed he becomes Speaker of the House, I think he better think twice about that. Ruth Marcus, Deputy Editorial Page Editor, George Will, Washington Post columnist, thank you both very much for coming back to First Look. Have a good weekend. You too. Thank you. Thanks.
Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.